This morning, we want to look at Genesis chapter 18, standing in the gap. You know, my wife and I, we, Teresa and I have been married 35 years, and there are a lot of things I love about her, but one of the reasons I think we have such a great marriage is that Teresa is the only person I know who is tighter with a dollar than I am. I mean, she can stretch a dollar forever. Uh, and I see this all the time, like on these, when we have issues with our cable or issues with the phone, she's on the telephone, you know, talking to somebody on the other end, usually somewhere over in another country. But uh, she's on there and it amazes me as I listen to her. You know, they, our rates go up and so she'll call them. And after about five minutes, they're giving us a discount. I mean, they're cutting our rates because she is so tenacious when it comes to bargaining for a dollar. Now, me, not so much. I just, I just don't go there. I don't know why. I'm not that kind of bargainer, and I appreciate that about her. Uh, the only time I've ever tried my skills at bargaining has been in foreign countries. You know, when you go to a little market or something there, and I've learned that everything is negotiable. And uh, you know, I remember in, in St. Petersburg, Russia, in the souvenir shops or Haiti or Honduras, or just recently in Nairobi, Kenya, when they let us go buy souvenirs. You know, you go to all these marketplaces and, and, uh, and you can bargain. But you can bargain because I've got money, something they want, and they've got souvenirs, something I want. And so we can kind of go back and forth on that. And, and I'm usually not very successful there either, honestly. But I do, do like to bargain when I know things are negotiable. But in our story this morning in Genesis chapter 18, we have a man who has the audacity to bargain with God. Abraham bargains with God. Let's look at Genesis chapter 18. We're going to begin in verse 22, and we'll go back to 16 in just a minute. But then the men turned away from there and went towards Sodom, while Abraham was still standing before the Lord. Abraham came came near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you indeed sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? So the Lord said, okay. If I find in Sodom 50 righteous within the city, then I will spare the whole place on their account. And Abraham replied, Now behold, I have ventured to speak to the Lord, although I am but dust and ashes. Suppose the fifty righteous are lacking five. Will you destroy the whole city because of five? And he said, I will not destroy if I find forty-five there. And he spoke to him yet again and said, Suppose forty are found there. And he said, I will not do it on account of the forty. Then he said, O may the Lord Adonai not be angry. And I shall speak. Suppose 30 are found there. And he said, I will not do do it if I find 30 there. And he said, now behold, I venture to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. And he said, I will not destroy it on account of the 20. Then he said, oh, may the Lord not be angry. And I shall speak only this once. Suppose 10 are found there. And the Lord said, okay, I will not destroy it on account of the 10. As soon as he finished speaking to Abraham, the Lord departed, and Abraham returned to his place. Father, we come to your word 
hunger with hunger and thirst, hungering, Lord, to hear, to learn, to be fed spiritually, thirsting for refreshment, thirsting for your presence. Lord, asking you in the name of Jesus to speak to our hearts this morning. God, cleanse us with your word. Lord, speak to us with your word. God, in in the words that we've just read, we know that, that you respond to your people. You interact with your people. That you are a God who speaks, a God who hears. And so, Lord, as we pray to you now, we pray that you would come into this place, meet with us today. Lord, change our hearts, speak to our hearts, convict us where we need convicting. Comfort us where we need comfort. God, reveal to us your truth today. Open our eyes that we may behold wonderful things from your word. Speak to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This, to me, is one of the most amazing, astonishing accounts in all of Scripture. I mean, it's one of the most beautiful, powerful pictures of intercessory prayer that we'll find anywhere. Abraham, in essence, was standing before the Lord, standing in the gap on behalf of the people of Sodom. In Ezekiel, Ezekiel, uh, the scripture says, Ezekiel 22, I searched for a man among them who would build up the wall and stand in the gap before me for the Lord so that I would not destroy it. But I found no one. I found no one. You know, the scripture says God's eyes are going to and fro all across the earth looking for one man whose heart is whole toward him. I want you to see this morning the power of an individual who will stand before God and see the love and compassion of an eternal, creative God who will listen to us. I mean, it really is amazing when we think about it, isn't it? But in essence, Abraham is standing in the gap for the people of Sodom, standing in the gap before the Lord on behalf of of these people. I want us to see several amazing truths, I think, this morning. The first is this. God reveals his purposes to his people. God reveals his purposes to his people. We see this actually again, eight, chapter 18, the first eight verses, and then again here in chapter 18, verse 16. Then the men rose up from there. The men, there were three of them who came to Abraham that day. The men rose up from there and looked towards Sodom. And Abraham was walking with them to send them off. The Lord, Yahweh, and it's important when I mention this, Yahweh said, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Since Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation. And in him, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. As you know, Abraham had been sitting at his tent's door that day, and three men come up. And they looked like three ordinary men to him. And Abraham, being the gracious person that he was, as was a lot to do with the custom, he began to serve them. He served them quickly, as the scripture says, he ran here and there. He, he served them with quality. We talked about this Sunday night. He, he offered them bread and water, and what did he give them? He gave them a feast. He ran to the herd and killed a choice calf and had it prepared. He brought meat and curds and all the food that he could give, and he set it before them. And then, I love that in verse 8, he stands quietly while they're eating. He's ready there. Need some more tea? Need some more mashed potato? Whatever. He's ready to serve. He's standing there quietly beside these men. Now, I can't imagine the impact that that had on Abraham's servants. Because, see, they did that for Abraham every day. 
They served him. They submitted themselves to his, his will. They called him Lord. Sarah called him Lord, as we saw in the New Testament. But Abraham, the Lord of his home, is serving these strangers, which I know, as I said, had a great impact on these men. But it turns out that these were no ordinary strangers. Hebrews 13.2 says, do not neglect to show hospitality to the strangers. For by this, some have entertained angels without knowing it. Angels unaware. As we saw last week, that's what Abraham was doing. He was entertaining angels unaware. Let me just ask you, how do you treat strangers when they come to your house? How do you treat strangers when they come to our church? How do we welcome them? Are we the most welcoming place on University Boulevard? Something to think about. But last week, as we, we were challenged in verse 14, the angels told Abraham and Sarah, this time next year, you will have a son. Abraham's 100, Sarah's 90, Sarah laughs. This time next year, you will have a son. And the question is, we see in verse 14, is anything too difficult for the Lord? And see, that was, that was a powerful question, a powerful message that we saw last week. So Abraham has entertained these guests. Now they leave. We see in verse 16, they're about to go. And as they look towards Sodom, the Lord, Yahweh, speaking, I think, to the other two angels in a way where Abraham could overhear, said, should I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Isn't that a great question? The God of the universe, the creator of all, was willing to allow Abraham to be a part of his plans. Why was that true? Because, see, God's grace enables us to know him personally. To know him personally. Abraham had a relationship with God that up until that point was really unique. It was amazing. Abraham would become known as the friend of God. The friend of God. In verse 19, God says, for I have chosen him. Your translation may be, I have known him. And the idea there is that God had a special relationship with this man, Abraham. I have chosen him. I have known him. To know in the Old Testament was a, a word used for intimacy. There was an intimate relationship between God and this man, Abraham. He knew him in a personal way. It's interesting, Amos chapter 3, verse 2, God speaks to Israel. says, you only have I known among all the families of the earth. Does that mean that God, does, God doesn't know about any other nations other than the nation of Israel? No. You only have I known, have I had a personal relationship with you. That's why in Matthew 7, when Jesus says, depart from me, for I never knew you. It doesn't mean that Jesus didn't know you were born and you never existed. It means that he never had a personal relationship with you. So again, God says, I'm going to reveal my plans to my man, Abraham. Why? Because of this personal relationship that God has with this man. You know, it's just as we share our secrets and plans with those we're closest to. Yahweh was going to let Abraham know what he was about to do. So the question would be, how did Abraham get into this intimate relationship? What was it about Abraham that would make God want to 
initiate and have a relationship with this man. Let me tell you simply, it was grace. Remember, God called Abraham. When God called him, he was a moon-worshiping pagan living in a far country. Yet God called him. When Abraham believed what God said, the scripture said that God declared Abraham to be what? Righteous. He reckoned reckoned it to Abraham as righteousness simply because he believed what God said. He was declared righteous. Isn't that an amazing thought? That the God of the universe would want to have a relationship with a man who is a moon-worshiping pagan? (laughs) But think about us, regardless of our background, regardless of our mistakes, when we hear the gospel, when we believe the word of God, the scripture says we are declared righteous. And we, by the gospel, can enter into a personal relationship with the God of the universe. In John chapter 1, verse 12, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. To have a relationship with God when we receive Christ, even those who believe on his name. So God, by God's grace, he enables us to have a personal relationship with him. Jesus said in John 15, 15, No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing. That's the key to that verse. The slave does not know what his master is doing. But I've called you friends. Because we know him personally, we know God's plans. We know what God plans to do, what God has done, and what he's going to do. Jesus His plan for the world is to send us out as his people, as we'll see more in just a moment. But his plan for the world, I I love Acts 17, 31. It says that God has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. That God's going to judge the world in righteousness. God's going to judge the world in righteousness. So God's plan is he's calling a people to himself from all over the world. Our hope is in Jesus. He is the savior of the world. And church, the Lord has revealed through us, through, to us through his word that there is no other way. That Jesus is this one who is the seed of Abraham. It is his descendants that will come, his descendant Jesus, who will come to fulfill the promise that God made that all the nations... All nations of the earth shall be blessed. So God is revealing his plans to his people. By God's grace, we can have a personal relationship with God. And look at verse 18. And Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation. And in him, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. This is why God revealed his plans to this man. He had established a relationship with him by grace. And now because of who Abraham is, he's going to be a blessing to all the nations. God is allowing Abraham to be a part of what he's about to do. The second thing we see in verse 19, for I have chosen him so that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him. So that the Lord may, so that he may command his children and his household. Church, let's see the truth here in this, 
It's so clear. God's promise is fulfilled through the family. God's promise is fulfilled through the family. What was Abraham's ultimate goal or purpose? Was to be a blessing to all the nations. Where does that start? With his children. Isn't that amazing? Look at verse 19. Look at that for yourself. For, for I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him. As we said earlier, God had chosen him and he chose him for a purpose. To bless all the nations. But it would begin in his family. Abraham is to start his ministry of being a blessing to all the nations at home. Now you think about it. He had one son right now. Ishmael. Born by his handmaid. And he had one son on the way. Although Sarah hadn't even actually conceived yet, just a promised child. But yet, God says, I'm going to bless all the nations through this one man as he starts by ministering to his family. The key to fulfilling God's promise is that Abraham would be a godly father. Listen up, men. Wives, don't go to sleep either, okay? What the world needs are godly men. We need godly men who are going to see their ministry, God's ministry, that starts at home. The key to fulfilling God's promise is that Abraham would be a godly father, a father who would command his children to keep the way of the Lord by teaching them, very simply, righteousness and justice. In the Old Testament, when we speak of righteousness, we speak of conduct, knowing right from wrong. The Old Testament deals with conduct. Fathers are to teach by example what it means to live according to God's moral standards, to do the right thing. That's righteousness. Justice relates to compassion for all. Fathers should demonstrate compassion for the downtrodden in society, for the needy in society, for the helpless. That's what the Old Testament speaks of when it speaks of justice, doing the right thing for those who can't defend themselves. And where are we going to learn that? From our dads. From the Father, all the way back to Abraham. This is God's plan of sharing the gospel with the world, starting with one man named Abraham who would be a godly father. I don't know about you men, but that gets me excited. Can you see the potential of a godly father? Can you see the way God could use one man to change the world? That's why I said earlier, the eyes of the Lord go to and fro all across the earth, looking for one man whose heart is whole toward him so that he can prove himself strong in that one person. So fathers are to teach their children, both by example and instruction, how to live so as to please God as individuals and also how to function in society for God's glory. Righteousness and justice coming from our fathers. Abraham is called to be a spiritual leader in his home. And that's the first step to God's plan to reach in the world. I just, when I saw verse 19 and was studying, I just, man, this is it. This is it. This is how we can all be a part of what God wants to do in our world today. And it's not brain surgery. It's not complicated. It's not rocket science. Be a good husband. Be a good dad. God's plan for Abraham was to leave a godly legacy with his family. A young man asked me this week, he said, can you explain spiritual leadership in the home? He's engaged. What does it mean to be a spiritual leader for my wife? 
And I said three things. It means as a husband, you are prophet, priest, and stay with me, king. We like to hear that word king, don't we? (laughs) But what does that mean? Prophet, priest, and king. This is spiritual leadership in the home. The prophet, the husband is the one who speaks for God to his family. He is God's mouthpiece in the home. He is a spiritual leader. He is a prophet. He speaks the word of of the Lord to his wife and to his children. He is a priest. He intercedes before God for his wife and children. He prays for them. And he is to be king as he leads his wife and children to know God. Paul said that the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. Again, we live in a society that wants to reject this, but this is how it works, church. The husband is to be the head of the wife. The husband is to be the head of the home. He is to be the spiritual leader. He is to be prophet as he speaks for God, priest as he intercedes before God for his family, and he is to be king as he leads his family with loving leadership the way Christ loves the church. You say, well, preacher, that's old-fashioned, but it works. It works. And that's what God called Abraham to do. His plan starts with the family. The man of God is to lead his family to know God. This is the man who stands in the gap. Stands in the gap. He instructs, he prays, and he leads by example. But let me say this. As some of you are just sitting there thinking, man, this is too much. For the purpose of full disclosure, let's look at Abraham's family. Was it perfect? No. Was he the perfect father? No. He had a son named Isaac. He loved Isaac, and he, you know, went so far as to offer Isaac, but God, God under, you know, he met that test. But Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau. Of course, Abraham already had a son named Ishmael, and we won't go there, but we know he irritated a lot of people. But Jacob and Esau, Isaac, Abraham's son, Jacob and Esau were Abraham's grand boys. Isaac demonstrated an unhealthy favoritism for one of his sons. Esau also had issues. Jacob was known as the deceiver. Jacob went on to have 12 sons. Ten of them beat up Joseph and threw him in a pit and tried to kill him. Do you get the idea? This is the man who is going to carry on God's plan by teaching his children and his household to walk in ways of righteousness and justice. But so we, none of us do it perfectly. But let me tell you the good news. We've tried to say this many times. Our, our brokenness does not disqualify us from God's plan. God's plan is not dependent upon our perfection. God's plan is dependent upon God's promises and God's faithfulness. Abraham was not the perfect father. You are not the perfect father. I am, no one is the perfect father. But yet our heart's desire is to be used by God. To be used by God to make a difference in this world. Our brokenness doesn't disqualify. As a matter of fact, our brokenness is the cracks created through brokenness that allow God's grace to come into our lives. And these are also the cracks that allow God's grace to shine out of our lives. We made mistakes. But by God's grace, I know what it means to be forgiven. By God's grace, I know what it means to have a purpose in life again, to be used of God. That God can take even my mistakes and use them for his glory. Men, your ministry starts at home. 
Your job at home is the toughest yet most important job you'll ever have. And we see that from verse 19. Maybe this morning, the first step is to confess that you've not been the spiritual leader in your home. Maybe you've neglected your role as the one who speaks for God to your family. You've neglected your role as the one who intercedes before God on behalf of your family. And you are the one who leads your family to know God. But it's never too late to do what's right. To start today. You can stand in the gap for your family. Before Abraham stood in the gap for the nation, he was reminded of the importance of standing in the gap for his family. So, quickly, number two, God accomplishes his purposes through his people. We see this in verse 20. And the Lord said, the outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great, and their sin is exceedingly grave. I will go down now and see if they have done entirely according to its outcry, which has come to me. And if not, I will know. And then verse 22 through 30 is where we see Abraham interceding for these people. So what do we see? First of all, Abraham in chapter 14 fought for the people of Sodom. He went to war for these people. Now in chapter 18, he's pleading for these very same people. Grace, God's grace encourages us to draw near in prayer. As we said, Abraham's relationship with God is a picture of God's grace. God was gracious to call him out of Ur. God was gracious to declare him righteous. God was gracious to share with him what he was about to do. And as a result, Abraham stands before God on behalf of these wicked people. That doesn't make sense. Abraham knew what was going on in Sodom. His nephew lived there, and that could have been a part of his motivation for sure. But yet the heart of Abraham reflected the heart of God because of this personal relationship he had with God. And so he stood before God. Abraham stands before the Lord in prayer. And by the way, Yahweh is the word for the Lord here. We see in verse 20. And the Lord said, Yahweh said, the two angels had moved on to Sodom. They were about to do the work. But Abraham stands before God in prayer. This, as I said, is the most remarkable example of intercessory prayer in all the Bible. A man who's willing to stand in the gap for a wicked people. Notice his boldness. Verse 23. Will you indeed swipe away the righteous with the wicked? The boldness to question God. The boldness to go to before him six different times. How about 50? How about 45? Will you give me 40? How about 30? 20? 10? You see the boldness of Abraham here? How about the humility of Abraham? Look at verse 27. He says, although I am but dust and ashes. Both humility and boldness are important in the effective prayer life. You know, Hebrews says we can come before God boldly, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in our times of need. That boldness comes from familiarity. Abraham knew God. He knew his heart. Will you be just if you destroy the righteous with the wicked? What was Abraham concerned about? God's honor, God's reputation. What are the nations going to say if you destroy righteous with the wicked? You know, it's interesting that God notices the righteous, even when they're a minority. Ezekiel chapter 14, verse 14. 
The people have gotten so wicked, God said, even if uh, Noah, Daniel, and Job were to show up, all I could do would be spare their families. I'm going to destroy everybody else. Noah, Daniel, and Job, you know, we get the idea that those were pretty righteous men. But God said the whole city of Sodom was going to be destroyed. And Abraham interceded for them. He questioned God because he knew God. He knew God to be righteous and just. From Abraham's perspective, that wouldn't be right to destroy the righteous. But notice also verse 25. He knew God to be just, but he also he knew God to be the judge of all the world. Shall not the judge of all the world deal justly? See, this is the kind of relationship that Abraham had with God. And church, this is healthy for us to know our Heavenly Father in the sense that He is a friend. He is just. He is righteous. But church, He's also a judge. The soul of the sin shall surely die. You know, again, the message of the gospel is grace. But we can't understand grace until we understand judgment. So Abraham had this perspective of God. Abraham knew God as judge, and yet he also knew him as friend. But here was Abraham's problem. It was twofold. He overestimated the goodness of man, and he underestimated the severity of sin. He overestimated the goodness of man. Surely there are 50 people in Sodom who are righteous. He always got down to 10. And by the way, let me tell you, God answered Abraham's prayer. If there had been 10 righteous men in Sodom, Sodom would have not been destroyed. Because God said he wouldn't destroy. He answered Abraham's prayer. But Abraham overestimated the goodness of men. Surely there are 10 men. Surely there are 50 men. Surely there are four. He overestimated. But he underestimated also the severity of sin. But let me tell you, prayer begins by knowing God. And prayer is God's way of allowing us to know him and become a part of what he's doing here on earth. See, the purpose of prayer is not for us to get God on our agenda. But the purpose of prayer is for us to understand who God is and to understand his agenda, his plan for the world. Prayer accomplishes the purpose of God. We're going to look at that more in detail tonight here at 6 o'clock. Jesus said in John 14, the works that I do, you will do and even greater works. And prayer is the greater work. I mean, when we're praying, church, here's what's going on. We're a part of what God's doing. When we're praying, we're a part of what God is doing. God's grace, God's grace encourages us to draw near in prayer so we can get to know God. Secondly, God communicates his grace to to all the nations through his people. God is showing Abraham and us that though he will save some, there is a judgment against sin. We here we see the severity of sin. The gospel holds all men accountable. And we're going to talk about this more next week, but look at verse 20. And the Lord said, the outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great, and their sin is exceedingly grave. The outcry of Sodom. This reminds me of the sermon we looked at in Genesis 4 when God told uh, Cain that the blood of your brother cries from the earth, cries out. See, that reminds us, 
There are no secret sins. Our sin cries out to the Lord. You know, we may hide something from our parents or from our roommate or from our spouse, but we don't hide anything from God. Our sin always cries out before the Lord. There are no secret sins. Sin, all sin, is against God. King David said it best, against thee and thee only have I sinned. We want to kind of categorize and say one is worse than the other. But all sin is rebellion against God. Now, the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah were unquestionably wicked. The men of these cities, as we'll see in the next chapter, were given over to sexual practices that were contrary to nature. And yes, I said that. Homosexuality is contrary to nature. It is not God's natural design for men to be with men and women to be with women. It is unnatural. The word sodomy and sodomize, they refer to homosexual practices that come from this account that we have in Scripture. It was wickedness. It says they were unquestionably wicked. Their wickedness had come up before the Lord. It was exceedingly grave. There's no other way to describe it. But let me tell you, church, that's not the only thing going on in Sodom. Isaiah chapter 3 verse 9 said they were proud of their sin. They displayed their sin like Sodom, and they did not try to conceal it. Sexual immorality was not their only offense. In Ezekiel 16, 49, look at this. Behold, <clears throat> this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had arrogance, abundant food, and careless ease, but she did not help the poor and needy. Thus they were haughty and committed abominations before me. Therefore I removed them when I saw it. Again, we see that whole concept of righteousness, doing the right thing. Justice, being compassionate toward the poor and the needy. Sodom had missed it in every regard. So it was not just sexual immorality. But Abraham interceded for these people. He fought for them in chapter 14. In chapter 18, he prays for them. You know why? Because that's the way God chooses to work. God accomplishes his purposes through his people. And church, that's where we are today. We live in a wicked, fallen world. There's no question about it. And there's no question about the wickedness all around us. So what are we going to do? As Ernest T. Bass says, I'm going to hermitize myself and try to get away from the world as far as we can. No. God calls us to be salt and light. As a matter of fact, in Romans 10, that whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's the message of the church to the world. That whoever will call upon the name will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in, who, in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. Church, we have good news for the world. It's a world that's wicked. It's a world that's fallen. But the only hope for the world is Jesus Christ. And that's our message God accomplishes his purposes through his people. And that's, what, that's his plan for us. He communicates his grace to all the nations through his people. That's why we desire for each of us here to know God. As Abraham knew God as your friend and as a judge, but as a friend. To know him personally. To find community. To encourage one another. And to live on mission. 
God has a plan for your life. He wants us to communicate his gospel to the world. Then finally, quickly, God looks for men to stand in the gap for their home, their church, and the nations. And I say that, men, because we're not just to focus on our home and let the world go to hell. That's the attitude of a lot of Christian men. Our ministry starts at home where we're to be godly fathers, but we're to stand in the gap for our family, for our church, and ultimately for the nations because that's God's plan. That's God's heart. If we're a man after God's own heart or want to be a man after God's own heart, we're going to be concerned about all three levels, all three areas, our home, our church, and the nations. God's looking for men who've answered that call to be prophet, priest, and king in their home. You know, I heard so many times my dad said, I want to be a good provider. And I think that generation thought that's all that it required, just be a good provider. Make sure your family have three square meals and a roof over your head. Man, God wants much more than you just being a good provider. My dad was a good man, a godly man. But we need men who want to be more than just good providers. We need men who will stand in the gap to speak to your family for the Lord, who will intercede before the Lord for your family and who will lead your family to know God and serve God. Your family is to be your first priority in ministry. Teach your family, pray for your family, lead your family. God's church is where you find community to co-labor, to be encouraged, to be shoulder to shoulder with other men who are going to do the same thing. As iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. As believers, we should have a burden for the nations. We can't all go. But we can all give. We can all pray. Pray for the nations. Pray for the people around the world who've never heard the gospel. As a close, what would God do if we had 50 righteous men at Alberta Baptist Church? 50 men right here this morning who would be willing to stand and say, I'm going to stand in the gap for my family, for my church, and for the nation. What if, we had fi- what if we had 40? What if we had 40 men in this place? Can you imagine what would... What, what if we had 30? Okay, let's go. What if we just had 30? Maybe 20. 20. Okay. How about 10? Do we have 10 men at Alberta Baptist Church who'd be willing to say, I'm going to stand in the gap for my family, for my church? And for the nations. And so the question would be, are you one of them? Would you be willing to do that? I'm going to ask the men who would be willing to do that during our invitation. As we sing, just to come forward. And say, you know, I'm tired of being a, yeah, I tell girls all the time, don't marry a Christian guy. That would be a waste. Don't marry a Christian man. Marry a godly man. Marry a godly man. If you have to wonder if he's saved or not, don't marry him. You find a godly man who's willing to stand in the gap for you, your children, for the church, and for the nations. That's a godly man.